It represents this iron cage of exclusionary policies that constitute a machinery of migrant death at the border that is now being extended throughout the region and throughout the world. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good evening, everybody. I just wanted to welcome everybody to this panel, the Haitian migration crisis made in the USA and enforced by the imperial border regime. My name's Ashley Smith. I'm with the Spectre Journal, and our panel tonight will be addressing the Haitian migration crisis, the Biden administration in collusion with states throughout Latin America and the Caribbean are repressing Haitian refugees, blocking their migration, denying them the right to asylum and subjecting them to deportation to horrific conditions in Haiti. This webinar will explore how this so-called migration crisis was caused by U.S. imperialism and enforced by the expansion of its border regime throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. We have an incredible um, panel that I'll introduce in just a moment, but I first just wanted to thank our many co-sponsors. First of all, Haymarket Books, Spectre Journal, the Democratic Socialists of America, Immigrant Rights Working Group, Witness at the Border, and the Tempest um, Collective. I'll introduce each of the speakers, and then after I'm done with introductions, I'll turn it over to them in the order. Um, so first we have Geraldine Joseph, who is co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. We also have Daniel Tse, the Asylum and Detention Task Force Coordinator at the Haitian Bridge Alliance, and also co-founder of the Cameroon Advocacy uh, Network. We have Todd Miller, who is the author of several books, including Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world, and Build Bridges, Not Walls, a journey to a world without borders. And last but not least, we have Camilo Perez Bustillo, who's a member of Witness at the Border, co-founder of the International Tribunal of Conscience of Peoples and Movement, and co-author of Human Rights, Hegemony, and Utopia in Latin America, Poverty and Forced Migration in Mexico and Colombia. So without further ado, I wanted to turn it over to Gerline and Daniel, who will talk about their experience and politics in Haiti and the black migration and Cameroon migration crisis and their experience with the border regime. So Gerline, take us away. Uh, honor, respect, uh, honor and respect. Uh, merci en pile, uh, uh, Ashley. Thank you so much, Ashley, for having us today. I think we are dealing with critical time and it is important that we have those critical uh, conversations. And it is such an honor uh, to be uh, with you uh, with such amazing panelists, uh, you know, Daniel, Camilo, you know, whom I... I, I 
adore. Todd, thank you for your work. Um, really looking into the Haitian migration crisis. And actually, you, you really set the table as to how, what, what's happening? How did we get here? That Those are questions that we, we hear about every day. So um, for people who do not know, the Haitian Bridge Alliance um, is uh, an organization that literally was founded because there were a need for Black asylum seekers, Black migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, when Haitian asylum seekers started arriving in 2015, there were no home for them. Nobody really understood the language. I'm really trying to see how we can create a safe space for Haitians. But when I arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border, I found people from Cameroon, from Mauritania, from Guatemala, from Venezuela, from Cuba, from everywhere. So we went for the Haitians, but we stayed for everyone. Uh, so by by really creating a home, a safe space for people, uh, last year we also uh, started the first Black Immigrants Bell Fund that we actually this morning uh, paid bond for seven people from five different countries, including Haiti, uh, Cameroon, Mali, and others that Daniel can share about. And we have paid bond for people from Sri Lanka to Venezuela to Cuba to Guatemala, but really highlighting the narratives and highlight the plight of Black migrants from the Caribbean, from Haiti, LGBTQAI members from Jamaica, uh, people fleeing five armed conflict in Cameroon and people fleeing slavery um, in, in Mauritania. Just to give a little bit of background of who we are as an organization, really trying to see how we can create and change a system that cannot be continued as is. Um, migration, Haitian migration, really um, the latest group of people who started migrating, we can look back into 2010 after the earthquake, um, and, and then people who went to Brazil and then Venice and, and then um, uh, Chile, and then made their way to the United States. We can look up to 30 years with people who went to Venezuela also because of turmoil in Venezuela right now making the journey. But we can go back to the 1970s, 1980s when we had the Haitian uh, fleeing um, di dictatorship in Haiti, uh, fleeing political turmoil, and we can look into how people at the same time were fleeing political turmoil uh, in Cuba and the way people were received in the United States when it came to the Cubans, you know, our Cuban cousins who happened to be of lighter shade, more desirable, and the Haitians who were happened to be of darker shade, less desirable. You know, we're just going to be, you know, I'll say it how, how it is. And we saw the realities of how the immigration prison system as we know it today was literally built for for the Haitians who were coming in and we see how the entire system is built uh, you know on anti-black racism but if we were to, I think Camilo might be able to touch a bit on the on the history later on you know the the Haiti history uh with the U United States history as far as going back all the way to 1804 what that looked like how do we get to when I say one of the richest colonies to the most impoverished nation, what are the factors that create a system where Haiti is forced 
to not prosper. And what does Haiti represent when it comes to immigration? Understanding that the, the reality of Haiti, the, the existence of Haiti represents freedom for all people in search of a safe space. It doesn't matter where you are from, if you, Haiti has, has, is a clear example of welcoming with dignity, right? By providing passports for, for, for people fleeing uh, the Holocaust in, in Eastern Europe to leading the fight for Venezuela and all the Latin American countries, what Haiti represents and why Haiti's existence is unacceptable to the West. It's unacceptable to the United States, unacceptable to the world, but we continue to be here. One thing we said in Haiti that we lack, nous la toujours, which means we are still here. Uh, um, even when, when it seems impossible, when it seems that we will never continue to exist, but nous la toujours, we are still here. Um, so we, we'll just have a little bit of dialogue. I'll, I'll let Daniel, um, you know, quickly introduce himself. And then we'll just talk about the journey, how it relates to Black immigrants, because his journey is the same as the hundreds and thousands of Haitians we saw in the Rio. The reality of the Rio, when the world finally saw what we have been telling them right. for a very long time. So I will pass it on to Daniel right now to introduce himself, and then we'll just have a, a dialogue uh, into what the immigration looks like. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gary, for the introduction. Thank you, Camilio, Todd, and Smith for um, being here today on this amazing panel. Um, I mean, um, just as I said, my name is Daniel Tay. I'm an asylee from Cameroon, um, West Africa. Most of you are familiar. And uh, I'm a fruit of, you know, the work that Haitian British Alliance has been doing right from the border across, you know, California and across the whole nation and back to Haiti and back to Africa. Um, as Gary mentioned earlier, um, the Haitian British Alliance went to the border for the Haitians, the state for everyone else. Um, just as she was explaining earlier, uh, we see that um, Haiti was this strong country that was, you know, ready, but again, because of the United States influence, they have found, they found themselves in this situation, similar thing with, with Cameroon. Cameroon is you know, known as African in nature, means it's the, you know, the heart of Africa, it holds Africa. Cameroon has all of this diverse culture and tradition and food and everything that um, could belong across Africa, could be found in Cameroon. But yet it's a country that is drowned now in several crises, uh, political yes. turmoil and very, very um, devastating conditions right now in Cameroon, cut across human rights violation, um, political crackdown, and just condition is just horrible and unspeakable. I was watching terrible videos today with Gary, and it was so unbearable to even watch. And we see that the United States and, of course, European, you know, power has direct, you know, um, influence on these issues that happen in Cameroon, um, starting from military support, military training to resources that have been given to um, this leadership of this country to equip them. Now they're using them against their own citizens. Um, so it is it is, it is is known, um, although not spoken of, that um, the United States and other European countries ha, are influencing um, these hum gross human rights violations that are happening in these various African countries, including Haiti. And uh, so, um, just as we have migrants from Haiti, we have migrants from Cameroon, from Mali, Somalia, Mauritania, that are facing similar issues um, from human rights violations and um, dictatorship governments and extrajudicial killing, assassination, same as uh, we have 
these immigrants making dangerous trips and journeys um, across Africa to the United States to seek for freedom, to seek for refuge. And we have the United States treating them as, as nothing because we, we all know, we saw it recently in Derio, where uh, we all know that because of we are not of the lighter shade, as Gavin said earlier, we are not welcome. We literally have people who are facing, um, you know, instabilities in their own countries, but are being evacuated and brought to safety, where furnished apartments and being kept in nice furnished homes. But we have other, you know, categories of people of the darker shade who present themselves at our doorsteps, asking, please save us, protect us. And what we have as a response is bundle them up put them in chains, um, not just on their hands, but hands, legs, and waist, and burn them up and put them in these horrible conditions, long hours of flight, and send them back to their graves. So it's it's absolutely um, um, uncalled for what the administration is doing, and that's why we are calling them out for this, for them to stop these horrible policies, starting from the Title 42 to the um, inhumane detention and deportation of um, Black immigrants on equal treatment. Um, it's absolutely uncalled for. So they are not just influencing or causing the destruction we have in our various home countries. They are again treating us, even when we come to seek, treating us poorly, even when we come to seek refuge, um, you know, from, uh, from, 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 from the very own conditions they cost. So um, it's absolutely uncalled for. And um, I made the journey um, after fleeing violence and persecution from Cameroon, made the journey through um, Central America. We all know the Darien Gap. Made it personally, um, I went in Mexico um, through the military system, which is today has escalated to what they call the MPP. Um, talking about that, um, we did in Mexico for a couple of um, about about a month and a half, and finally got in to seek for refuge. And then I was treated as a criminal. Um, that's where I made going in Mexico again. Spent um, over a year being locked up in ICE detention facilities. Horrible, as Gary mentioned, which was actually created designed for black people. We all know how in 1980s, when the Cubans and the um, Asian came here, we had later on these for-profit detention centers that came forth just because they wanted to incarcerate black people and make profit out of them. So um, being through the system, being through the horrible condition, um, it's absolutely um, inhumane what the United States is doing by treating people as such who are here to seek for freedom. Uh, they absolutely erase the idea of humanity and treating people with dignity. So it's absolutely uncalled for. And uh, I just thought I made that brief highlight. And I'm going to pass it over to Kerlin for us to continue this conversation on, on exactly what are the issues um, um, our brothers and sisters are facing today, starting from um, when they arrive at the border, um, how they're being treated when being introduced into the system as immigrants, how they're being treated even when they present themselves to conduct credible treatment that imagine how much more immigrants are faced are facing throughout their journey. So um, I'll end there. Uh, th thank you so much, uh, Daniel. And, and you know, I, I have to tell everyone that you just um, graduated law school uh, <laughs> and from Chapman University, and I am so proud uh, of you. And as Daniel mentioned, I met Daniel in Tijuana during one of our humanitarian trips. And then um, thought I will never see him again. Uh, and then he ended up in, in immigration prison, literally 10 miles from me. And so after he got released after a year, um, he, he stayed close by and graduated law school. So I just want people to know this is what's possible. And this is what people have fled 
political turmoils and extreme conditions just to be able to give a chance to 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 be to be amazing um and now he is leading the cause and giving back to the community and giving back to the country um not only as an attorney but uh, as a fighter for for those uh, uh, who he made the journey with whether they're from Haiti or other countries um if we want to look into the Rio, uh, I was in the Rio when this whole thing happened, and everybody's asking, "What was that like?" You know, I, mean, I feel like I'm again about to get emotional. But under that bridge, while I was standing there, the only thing that separated me from the people was literally a chicken wire. But it wasn't separating me from the people. It was separating me from myself. I literally was looking into the eyes of 14,000 people who could have been me. I was looking into myself, outside of myself, on the other side of that chicken wire. I don't know if that makes sense. And on top of that, as a Haitian-American woman, as a Black immigrant, descendant of enslaved people. So I cannot explain what that was like to be seeing those inhuman treatment and for the world to see the pictures and the videos that I witnessed firsthand and the fact that the United States, instead of getting account, making sure that they're accountable, they have literally erased, silenced, and disappeared all the potential witnesses and all the people who were subject to that abuse. And I will repeat, the United States have erased, silenced, and disappeared all the potential victims and all the potential witnesses. So how can we have an investigation when we have disappeared the key witnesses that will be a part of that accountability? But again, that is not lost on, on who we are as a people. Okay. That is yeah. not lost on our experience and our community. That is what we have been dealing with for a very long time. Now, three presidents, they started coming under President Obama for the first year and a half, end of 2015, the entire 2016. Then the entire regime of Trump and now seeing the policies such as Title 42 continue today under the guise of, um, of, of, of health, uh, uh, codes. While at the same time, we have vaccines, we have a booster shot, we have quarantine, and the government is literally paying people to take the vaccine. And we have opened the border for all people who have proper documents for visa holders and people who got stuck on the other side. Yet, they are using Title 42, saying that because of that, Asylum seekers can continue to remain in Mexico 
can continue to die in the Darien Gap, can continue to not be able to get access to protection. Um, I'm looking at the time before I end and pass it on back to, to Ashley. One thing I want to highlight is that for Black immigrants, for Haitian immigrants and Cameroonian immigrants, as Black people in motion, there is no safe space for us. We have been forced, due to U.S. policies, out of our homeland to be able to make a journey of thousands of miles, crossing 11 borders, searching for life, yet there is no safe space for us. Our women are getting raped in Colombia. Our people are getting shot in Panama. Our people are disappearing in Mexico. And we see how right now Tapachula, the state between Guatemala and Mexico, is being used as a prison state specifically to handle Haitians and other Black migrants because the moment we leave the encampment that have been created to bar us from protection, we are seen abused because we are traveling in our black bodies. I'll stop here and give it pass to Ashley. Thank you so much for that, Gerline and Daniel, for your struggle and your bravery and courage and accomplishments. I think if people want to continue following the work of the Haitian Bridge Alliance and the Cameroon Advocacy Network, please follow the links in the chat. And this work is ongoing and really has a long history that people should learn from Gerline and Daniel about the struggle. So I'll now turn it over to Todd Miller. Um, take it away, Todd. Hi, um, thank you uh, very much, Ashley, and really a lot of thanks to Gerline and um, Daniel. Uh, listening to your words are is are, it's very powerful to hear um, not only what you're saying, the testimony, but also the work that you are doing, and um, and it's really a pleasure to be here with um, also with Camilo, who I've known from previous, uh, I also know previously as well. Um, at, I'm going to talk for a minute about the U.S. border and and just the U.S. the the kind of um, um well the the nature of the U.S. border just kind of piggybacking off of what Caroline and and Daniel were saying. Um, but one of the when I think of um, the U.S. border in relation to Haiti, one of the one of the first things I think of is the 2010 earthquake, and um. Five days after the earthquake, uh, there was a jumbo jet sent over uh, Haiti by the United States, and from that jet was a pre-recorded uh, voice of of the ambassador, um, who was speaking in Creole and saying and telling people and, and imagine you know there's so much devastation on the island after the 2010 earthquake and um uh. More than 200,000 people killed, a uh, mil uh, million people, um, there were, people were in the rubble of their homes. But imagine uh, this jet going over for, with a message from the United States telling them, telling people not to leave. If you leave, you'll be interdicted and returned back to back to Haiti. And that those words were backed up by um, 16 Coast Guard cutters, which showed up 
in Haitian waters, right on right along the shores, and um, the in the private prison company Geo Group activated uh, prison beds in in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, expecting that people would leave. And really, what happened was the United States set up a border like that really quickly, um, right, and it went right up to Haiti. Um, so the idea of the United States border. And what it is, and how elastic it is, and how massive it is, was was shown in those moments. And um, I want to look at that and and look at the 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 massive fortification of the U.S. border, um, which we usually think of the U.S. Mexico border, right? The the two thousand mile U.S. Mexico border, and if you look over the last twenty five years, of course, you see dramatic historic fortification. You can look at a number of different ways from budgets going from $1.5 billion in 1994 to this year, 2021, there was $25 billion budget for CBP and ICE. So you're, you're talking about massive increases that have translated into walls and barriers and billions of dollars put into surveillance technologies, including drones, aerostats, surveillance balloons. Um, armed agents, about 21,000 agents that are deployed along the Mexico border, the South, the Canadian border, and in the Caribbean. The part of the Caribbean flank of the U.S. of the U.S. border is almost always understated. And um, and so so this this fortification has this has translated into that area. It's what U.S. officials have called the quote unquote third border. Um, a lot of emphasis has been put into um, the Caribbean in general, uh, especially from uh, Puerto Rico. The Aguadilla uh, is on the west coast of Puerto Rico, and if you go there, you'll find a border patrol station. The west, the west coast of, of of Puerto Rico. If you go along the highway, and I live in Arizona, it's amazing to me to see the the amount of green striped vehicles that are patrolling that west coast that looks on onto the mona passage across the mona passage of course is is the dominican republic and haiti and um and that whole area is patrolled heavily with drones and and um cbps there and coast guard and um so so that this part of the u.s border is 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 definitely there's been definitely a serious buildup. One one story um, that I was told doing research uh, in that area was from a park ranger who worked at the Mona Island. The Mona Island from the Mona Island, you it's closer to the Dominican the sh the shore of the Dominican Republic than it is Puerto Rico. Um, but on in the in in a story that this park ranger shared with me. He was deputized to be an immigration enforcement agent. And imagine you're about, and for the United States, you're about 1,500 miles or about 1,000 miles from the United States mainland. You're on this small island that's closer to the Dominican Republic, I think about 30 miles. And he told me this story of a, of a, of a, of a boat that was, that was going somewhere else. It wasn't going to the island, but it crashed. And when it crashed, the people got, got off the boat all the people were from Haiti. They got off the boat, and what what did the park rangers do? They immediately arrested them for not having documents to be in the United States. 
Um, and so that's it's just that's just one example of many examples of of this expanded U.S. border and how it translates and how it how it manifests in the Caribbean um, and how the United States is paying incredible amount of attention to it. Like there's a biannual um, exercise called uh, Ad- Integrated Advance, I believe it's called. It's through Operation Vigilant Sentry. And it's basically CBP and Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection, along with Southcom or Southern Command, they come together and they practice interdicting people leaving their homes. And and they and they and they 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 they, they there's a number of reasons that they give for this, including climate, the climate reasons, like the the weather, you know, the sh- the shifting. Uh, storm surges from you know in the accelerated climate crisis that we're in, and um, and so there's there's not only this buildup but there's this active knowledge and this per- practicing of interdiction, and um, another another uh, part of it um, of this kind of boa constrictor border apparatus that that uh, that we're seeing in the Caribbean it, it I should also stress that it's. That it goes to the Caribbean, it goes to the U.S.-Mexico border, it's the U.S.-Canadian border, it's along the U.S. coasts. But it's also, there's a whole strategy of what I would call externalization of the U.S. border, or the or what officials call the extension of the, uh, the, the zone of security, extending the U.S. border as far as it possibly can go. And... Um, and what the United States is doing, and they've and it's done with over a hundred countries that I've that that I've found in my research, is make agreements with governments to then help help uh, train and form uh, their own border patrols or their own border walls, such as the the Dominican Republic, such as right on the border with Haiti, um, in two thousand six. The United States Customs and Border Protection sent an assessment team to look at the Haiti Haiti Dominican border, and their assessment was, oh, it's porous. And so the 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 assessment went to the Dominican the Dominican government. The Dominican government then issued a presidential decree that called to form its own border patrol. And by the time I went there, I, I went there in 2012 to Dahabon, and. Uh, which is right on the border with Haiti. It's on the Dominican side of the border with Haiti. The border patrol is active. They had a, a kind of a protest bar- barricades up in a wall, and they look like really honestly what the border patrol looks like in Nogales, just south of where I live. Just sitting there, exes, um, stopping people from crossing ac- across the massacre river, and and uh, and just really an imitation of that. So that so. Just to just to tie this all up in a broader point, um, the United States is to think of the U.S. border as just the Mexican border is 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 a reductive. It's very expansive. It's going all over the world. When you look at the world, it's really there's a global border regime in, in place. There's over 63 border walls. There's hundreds, probably hundreds of thousands of border patrol agents um, that are in different parts of the globe, in many places trained by the United States. And um, to, to, 
that there's over 2000 detention centers around the world where people are incarcerated part of this border regime is one of the, one of the things that's always interesting to me is that when 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 you talk about oh when you bring up something like open borders people people will say oh it's going to cause instability but what is not and this is my last point what is not discussed is that instability is U.S. policy. It's aggressive, militaristic, economic, foreign policy around the world. In order to keep this instability in place, they have to, in, they have to impose this, this sort of status quo border regime. Thanks so much, Todd. That was really, really good. Um, and I think puts all of this in a bigger context. And Camilo, I'm sure you will do the same. So I'll turn it over to you and then we'll have time for questions and answer and further discussion. Go ahead, Camilo. Thank you so much. And I'm just so honored to be here to accompany and support and express my solidarity on behalf of Witness at the Border, on behalf of the International Tribunal of Conscience, and on behalf of an emerging group that I want to share with all of you, which is a forum on Haitian migration in the Americas that's been convened by Haitian scholars, migrants, human rights defenders in Mexico and Colombia to try and respond to the regional dimensions of this. I, I just want to stress how important it is that we support the work of Haitian Bridge Alliance, of the Cameroon Advocacy Network, of the Undocumented Black Network, etc. Everything that can highlight the inherent racism and xenophobia and imperialist character of the border regime and everything it means, everything we've heard about, and why we need to take the struggle of Haitian migrants as our own. You know, Gurleen asked this very powerful question that Daniel also responded to through his extraordinary testimony about how did we get here. And I think it's it's really important for a moment to step back. I'm a human rights lawyer, scholar, advocate. This is what I teach about. This is what I try to practice. When we talk about the history of the idea of universal human rights, we still have the tendency to think about it as a Western or European invention. We need to decolonize our understanding of human rights. And that's one of the most important messages of what we've heard today from Gerline and from Daniel and from the work they do. We have to understand that the origin of that concept of universal human rights, the way we got here is through the struggle of the enslaved people of Haiti through their liberation. It was the Haitian Revolution that made human rights truly universal for the first time. And that's why Haiti became the first independent republic to abolish slavery and to declare that if any slave, any enslaved person set foot on Haitian soil, they automatically became subjects of the rights of universal citizenship. That was the Haitian Revolution, not the French Revolution. It was the French Revolution that learned from the Haitian Revolution. Those of us who've read C.L.R. James, Black Jacobins, know this history. And, and so that's what Gerlin and Haitian Bridge Alliance and Daniel and their testimonies and voices represent today. So we have to think about the fact that we have just experienced in the U.S. 
And all of us share responsibility for this and complicity if we don't act. The largest mass deportation of any group of migrants since 1954. The mass deportation of, by the U.S., almost 9,000 Haitian migrants, those at Del Rio that Gerlin just spoke about, but also several hundred more from neighboring Caribbean countries, from the Bahamas, from Cuba, from Mexico, over 10,000 between September and the current date. Simply from the U.S., that's the largest mass deportation since the 1950s. What was that in the 1950s? It was what was officially called Operation Wetback, carried out by Customs and Border Protection in 1954. That's the kind of echo, that's the kind of resonance, that's, those are the implications of, of what's happened with respect to Haitians. Now, what does this represent? What does this reflect? It represents this iron cage of exclusionary policies that constitute a machinery of migrant death at the border that is now being extended throughout the region and throughout the world. As the U.S. borders expand, as Todd has shared with us, and as his work so extraordinarily documents, it's absolutely obligatory reading and basis for reflection. All of the work that Todd has done on these issues and others like Harsha Walia, our, our comrade and, and friend and scholar, and also Justin Akers Chacon and others who've documented these issues, we have to understand what's going on at the U.S.-Mexico border and at the southern borders of Mexico as integral parts of this. And how these policies and practices are being reproduced, not just between Mexico's northern and southern borders, right? We've heard about Tijuana and we've heard about Tapachula, but also to the borders between Colombia and Panama. My family is from Colombia. That's where my roots are. I am here also speaking as a Colombiano, in solidarity with my Haitian sisters and brothers and other African immigrants currently trapped on Colombian soil at the border with Panama at the entry to the Darien Gap. There are tens of thousands of Haitian and African immigrants trapped there. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken was just in Bogota two weeks ago sealing the deal with and prevent the forward movement of those tens of thousands of Haitians and others trapped at the border between Colombia and Panama. It is all part of the same process, just as what Todd has alerted us to what's going on in the Caribbean. So the key thing here is when we look at MPP and its revival, its resuscitation as we speak, in collusion and complicity between the US and Mexican authorities, and we look at Title 42, and we look at mass deportation, and we look at the repression of the caravans of migrants, including hundreds and thousands of Haitians, as we speak, moving north through Mexico to break out of that space of containment, that state of detention that's been created at Mexico's southern border around Tapachula. All of those are pieces of the same machinery.
And that machinery is the machinery that we have to stop with our activism, with our consciousness, with our critical reflection about all of the ways in which what's happening now to Haitian migrants and to Cameroonian asylum seekers and the application of these cruel methods of torture, of chaining human bodies, of creating new systems of bondage in the name of immigration and border policy against Cameroonians, against Haitians and others. We just had the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties of DHS turn away the complaint about the wielding of whips, of, of reins as whips, and the corralling of Haitian migrants, and to relegate it to a personnel matter, a professional responsibility matter in the office of the uh, Inspector General of DHS, not to handle it as a civil rights complaint. Fortunately, they have agreed to open the investigation properly into the issue of the use of the RAP, which, uh, 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 Daniel described to us this chaining and confinement of human bodies and subjection to torture in the process of the mass deportations of Cameroonians and of others. Fortunately, that complaint is being investigated. But we have to hold those entities within DHS responsible and accountable the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, the Office of the Inspector General, the House of Representatives Oversight Committee needs to supervise the handling of those complaints and to assess whether they've been appropriately addressed. And we need to hold Secretary Mayorkas and the Biden administration itself accountable for all of these instances which constitute international crimes. Let's go back to everything we've learned from the struggles for liberation of the Haitian people, beginning with the concept of universal rights, and apply that to what is being done today in the name of U.S. border and immigration policy. Then, as now, in 1791, when the Haitian people rose up, in 1804, when they declared independence, and today, it is the Haitian people and black immigrants leading us in this struggle. And we need to stand with them everywhere where we can mobilize our consciousness and our hopes. Thank you so much for those powerful words, Camilo. I think everybody should share this video recording as widely as possible so that people hear this incredible panel. I just want to encourage people um, um, to put their questions in the chat on YouTube, and we'll get to as many of them as possible. If there are details you're not familiar with, feel free to ask those just so that you can learn more. And then not only learn more, teach other people about the reality of what's happening um, before our eyes. Um, while people are getting their thoughts together with questions, I had some questions for first for Gerline and Daniel, um, because Del Rio brought the crisis to everybody's consciousness, everybody <clears throat> saw, but then everybody was whisked away and it dropped from the headlines. And I just want to hear your story and account of what happened to the deportees 
and the people who've been driven back into Mexico and back into other countries in Latin America? What has been the experience of the people from Haiti, from Cameroon, from the other countries um, that uh, people um, who assembled under the bridge in Del Rio? So maybe you just first start with Gerline. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, for people who do not know, I love Camilo, and you just received a dose of reality of what has been happening. Thank you so much, brother, uh, uh, for that. I appreciate you. Um, three things happened to the people who were, who were under the bridge. Um, as of today, close to 9,000 of them have been deported. That includes pregnant women, babies as young as just a couple of days old. 9,000 have been deported. Um, a few thousands were pushed back to Acuna. Uh, you saw the, the men you know, in horseback in uniform with the whip. And um, that Sunday, we actually went to Acuna. To, to, to visit the people who were pushed back because what they were saying is that they went back voluntarily to be able to really understand what happened and what we heard <clears throat> could not even believe or understand <clears throat> how those people were forced back into Mexico. <clears throat> what we saw is exactly what was happening. <clears throat> um, and then there are a few who were released those who were released, we are still working with, trying to, to give them a home, a space, a foundation so that they cannot just survive but thrive as they continue their journey in the United States. Um, but too many are still in immigration prison. Um, those are people who are still in limbo. We are fighting for them to be released. As a matter of fact, last week we requested that those people be released because they are potential victims and witnesses of what happened in the Rio. And so these are the four things that that we are seeing right now. 9,000 have been deported. A few thousands were sent, but were pushed back, literally physically pushed back to, to Acuna, Mexico. A few were released that we are supporting and helping. And then the rest are still in immigration prison, uh, dealing with an, uh, uncertainty, and their lives are still in limbo. So th- this is exactly what's what's been happening. But I can share with you quickly a story of um, one person who who was deported, and it's a mother. Um, she had a newborn infant. She was handcuffed, her hands, her feet tied into a chain in her waist while she was trying to hold a baby um, in that flight where they told them that they were going to be brought to their relatives uh, in the United States, they were put on that plane and while they were in route, the baby fell. The baby fell and none of the officers got up to help. The baby fell and rolled on the aisle of the plane. And they started crying, they started screaming. It wasn't until maybe about 30 minutes later that one of the um, officers uncuffed one hand 
so she could pick up the baby. That has been the experience of the people. And when they arrived in Haiti, there's absolutely nothing for them. There's no organizations to guide them. They are being dropped at the airport. At first, they were given $100. That became half $50. And they then started giving them $25 so that they can live their lives. So basically, imagine somebody who left Haiti as a survivor of the earthquake in 2010 made their way to Brazil or Chile, barely survived, made the journey, went through Colombia, went to Panama, went to the Darien Gap, survived Mexico, and then dropped in Haiti with $25, while the United States just spent $15 million giving to the airline companies, $15 million to deport the 9,000 people. So that is the reality. When, when, when my brother Camilo speaks about human rights abuse, that is the reality. So to date, 84 flights costing U.S. taxpayers $15 million to deport 9,000 people of Haitian descent. And I cannot even explain to you the mental health issues that we are reporting, people literally committing suicide because there is no other way for them to move forward. All right. Daniel, if you would like to add any of your um, uh, account of what happened to people after they left, if you had anything to add to what Caroline said. I mean, thank you, Ashley. I mean, um, each time this topic is brought up, it's always um, a hard mountain to climb because it's a personal experience. Um, being in those chains, being in, in that in that position that I've just described, it's not something that I only hear about, it's something that I've seen, I've experienced, and it's something that I've, I'm, I'm working with people um, right now who are going through the same situation, people are literally calling me from detention and begging that I should help them, but I cannot help them. The United States can help them, but yet they choose to put them in these um, positions to treat them very horribly. Um, I have an individual who was deported, uh, five individuals who were offered deportation, were able to fight for one of them, was taken off the plane at Puerto Rico, and he was narrating the story of how that deportation flight happened. They literally put you in chains. Your, your steps are less than um, less than 20 centimeters, less less than 15 centimeters, just how tight the chains are on your hands, your waist, and your legs. And um, Gary was explaining how the baby fell down the aisle of the plane and rolled. They don't care. They literally give you food, and you're in chains. Um, how are you going to eat? Imagine being in a plane from here to Africa, over 20 hours of flight. Uh, they don't care if you're eating or drinking water or how you used to use the restroom, nothing. All they cares about putting you in chains and making sure they, make the, this, they punish the black body for them to understand that they are not welcome in this country. Um, it's, it's, it's not just something that has started today. The, the world was only able to see it because pictures um, came out from Dario, but it's something that has been happening in the immigration system for 
for centuries. People have been complaining about it. Asian missionaries have been talking about it. Uh, we've been high bonds of people through the black immigrants before have been complaining about it. But yet, people are just waiting for some picture to pop up before they do something. Yet, we are completely um, against that. We want people to stand up and join the fight that the Haitian British Alliance and other black-led orcs are leading to defend black immigrants, um, to stop the Title 42 expulsion, to stop the inhumane detention and treatment of asylum seekers through uh, the mass deportation. How determined are they to deport these people by spending that amount of money when those people can be assets to this country as far as taking care of themselves and surviving? Again, they're not here to seek for better opportunity. They're seeking for a chance to live for life, for safety. That's what people should understand. This is humanity. And uh, again, in addition to that, it's because the United States and other countries, they're the root causes of this issue. And that's we have people um, fleeing from this violence that has been caused, of course, other natural disasters as well, to seek for refuge. But what we, what we, what we receive is, um, um, you know, the relegation to the background and, you know, the refusal to accept black bodies because we have the darker shade. So uh, I, I just want to say that um, the treatment of these individuals who are seeking asylum is absolutely uncalled for. Um, being locked up for a very, very long period of time, put in chains, put in very horrible conditions, cold rooms. The, 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 the encounters are so much to describe. Um, and no no person should be allowed to be treated as such. So um, I'll just I'll just end at that. Thank you so much, Daniel. I, I wanted to um, ask um, Camilo and then Todd about the role of the Latin American governments in this border enforcement. In particular, Camilo, you and I have talked about the role of the Mexican state and being basically a lieutenant of the U.S. government in enforcing the border. So first, could you could you just talk about that a little bit? Because really, now it's the Mexican state that's doing the border guarding on the southern border of Mexico. So could you just explain that for us? Absolutely. And, and you know, that, that's critical to understanding what really happened on the ground in uh, Del Rio and at Ciudad Acuña, you know, what, what Gerlin was, was testifying about, but also what's going on at Tijuana, at Tapachula, at both ends of Mexico, northern and southern borders. It's U.S. immigration and border policies that are being enforced and implemented on Mexican soil through direct cooperation collusion, complicity, and co-responsibility between U.S. and Mexican authorities. That started 20 years ago, but has only intensified. It became what was called the Plan Frontera Sud, the southern border program around Tapachula. That's what led to what Gerlin described, which is the creation of this space of containment for thousands of Haitian and other migrants. You know, Central American migrants have been recurrent victims of the same cruelties. Many of them fleeing indigenous communities that were victims of genocide in Guatemala, where the U.S. was directly responsible. So mm -hmm. it's a, this is all the continuity of the structural violences that are embedded in U.S. policy towards Latin America. The government of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is directly complicit and responsible. They have been flying their own deportation uh, processes. They have been activating their own deportation processes against both 
Central Americans and Haitians, but they collaborated directly in the most recent wave in this larger mass deportation. They're doing everything possible on the ground to contain and repress the ultimate issue which is the right of migrants to freedom of movement. What we are calling for from witness at the border, from the International Tribunal of Conscience, is a struggle for the global recognition of the right to freedom of movement, the right to migrate, especially where you have migrants denied decent, dignified conditions of life on the ground because of U.S. policies, because of U.S. intervention. That's been the story recurrently in Haiti with U.S., U.N., and OAS intervention against the rights of self-determination of the Haitian people. It's been the policy with respect to Cameroonian asylum seekers, and it's the policy against Guatemaltecos, Salvadoreños, Hondureños y Hondureñas, who are simply seeking the better life that was denied to them by U.S. policy by coming through Mexico and to the U.S. border. So there's a duty of international solidarity that we owe, but there's also a concrete struggle for the recognition of this right to freedom of movement. We have to hold the Mexican government of Lopez Obrador equally responsible for these crimes. He is doing this in return for other forms of cooperation that serve his regime's interests. He is misunderstood widely on the left in the U.S. as somehow a leftist. He clearly is not. Ask anyone on the ground in Mexico, in Mexico's human rights movements, in the movements defending the rights of indigenous peoples to territory, to land, to self-determination. Ask the Zapatistas what they think of Lopez Obrador, we should not exempt him. And to the contrary, we should include him in those that have to be held responsible and accountable. These crimes transcend borders and these policies transcend borders. And so our work has to transcend borders and tear them down. Thanks, Camilo. Todd, I'm sure you have stuff to add about the internationalization of the border regime. And in this specific instance, and the role of other Latin American countries in driving people from where they've been living, driving Haitians from where they've been living. So what are your comments? I only can just follow up with kind of what Camilo was saying. He said it so well. Um, But I, I mean, I would like I've been thinking well, it, since since the southern border program that Camilo mentioned was implemented in Mexico, I believe it was in 2014 and then 2015, Mexico was deporting more people than in terms, I think, of Central Americans is the stat. But in terms of uh, Central Americans in the United States, which flipped uh, flipped the flipped the the trend where the United States was deporting more people um, from she's back to Central America and. Just, I mean that that stat alone shows, you know, is indicative of of the Mexican border, the southern border with Mexico, being um, a front line of the U.S. border. And in fact, the one of the U.S. officials said, and uh, that the 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 southern border of the United States is no longer the border with Mexico; it's now the border between Chiapas and Guatemala. And uh, and so this sort of these sort of uh, this these sort of 
what I guess we could call agreements or pressure, U.S. pressure. Um, and then these agreements that the United States makes with countries, you can you can go throughout the entire region. Uh, um, Guatemala, for example, Guatemala has border patrols now. Uh, border patrols. I remember when I was doing research and I went to where the border patrols look. One of the border patrols on the Honduran border was located. I was just going to see if the United States had anything to do with it, and I had a hunch that they did. And the first thing the commander told me was. Oh, yeah, we got all the money from the United States embassy, you know, so it's it goes on and on like that through um, uh, not only not only in terms of getting money to train and build border patrols, but also um, uh, all kinds of resource transfers and like armored jeeps and guns and the deployment of, of these border patrols as they go on and on and on. If you look at like CBP, they, they talk about a layered border strategy in which they mean it goes, it ripples on like Camilo is talking about Colombia, you know, there's agreements there. There's a, there's a CBP attache in Brazil. There's a CBP attache in uh, Santo, Santo Domingo and in, in Dominican Republic. You go, you go, there's CBP attache in, in uh, Nairobi and Kenya, right? You, you go everywhere and there it is. And there's agreements being made. And then there's a simultaneous and um, uh, just devastating effects of U.S. policy that are going all throughout the kind of, if you look at Central America or Haiti or the Caribbean and this 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 policy of extractive ransacking of of wealth of, of people and lead and and just just uh, the the idea that the, the like Harsha Walia always says, you know, look, there, it's always called a it's called a border crisis, right? Or, or it's it's framed as a border crisis. Well, no, that. If it's a border crisis, the border isn't the victim, right? The border is a big inanimate object, and and we're supposed to like have sympathy for it. And she she talks about reframing it to a displacement crisis. And when you're in a displacement crisis, then new questions are asked. Then, oh, what what are reasons behind why people are leaving? And then, for from a U.S. point of view, what are some of what are the policies and practices of the United States doing to impact this? And that's that's where you know you see like, um, uh, uh, yeah, just I'll just leave it at that. But that in in terms of like asking and thinking about new questions to to ponder this. If I could uh, yeah, just add- I want it. Go ahead, Camilo. Yeah, just quickly, just concretely right now as we speak, if you look at media coverage of what's going on on the ground at Mexico's southern border, this attempt to contain and repress the caravans, it's the Mexican National Guard and the military and border agents armed and financed by the U.S., that are containing the caravans. On Guatemalan soil, it's Guatemalan security forces armed and financed by the US that are doing the same. And it was at Camargo, at the northern border in January 2021, that 19 migrants were massacred, 16 of them indigenous from Guatemala by Mexican state police who'd been trained by the US. So it's very concrete. It's not abstract. The other thing, just quickly, people are looking now at the elections in Chile. The far right candidate won. The runoff is coming up in December. You know, it's definitely an issue between left and right. But this candidate who placed first 
from the far right, he rose in the polls by riding the tide of Chilean anti-immigrant sentiment against Haitians and Venezolanos. It was specifically against Haitians and Venezolanos and African immigrants on Chilean soil. That's why he rose in the polls. He looked at Trump's playbook. He played that as his option. And that's the danger in Latin America, is this wave of racism and xenophobia that is fed, nourished, financed, and armed by the U.S. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Camilo. I, I wanted to ask, um, coming off of what Todd just said about the displacement crisis, because one of the things that's particularly infuriating is the mystification of why people are coming. It's like people appear at the U.S.-Mexico border as if they've been beamed from outer space. Uh -huh. And the U.S. and the European powers and the other big corporations that run the world have no responsibility and culpability for this crisis. Um, and I, I wanted to ask both Gerline and Daniel about that because I think we've got to dig deeper as the displacement crisis argument makes us why people are leaving Haiti, why people are leaving Cameroon, what are the forces that have driven people to seek refuge in the U.S. and in Latin American countries? In particular, let's begin with, with uh, Haiti, Gerline. What, what is the U.S. role in causing the crisis that have driven people out of Haiti? Uh, I don't think we have enough time, um, actually, to really go into the details, but let's just start with the current, uh, um, uh, you know, crisis on the ground in Haiti, uh, where we have government that have literally been U.S. puppet into the country, uh, where we have a country without the president whose prime minister literally answered to the United States as whether they should get up in the morning or go to bed at night. It is that serious. Um, and we are seeing the United States literally last week put a memo out saying all U.S. citizens need to leave Haiti at the same day deporting people into Haiti. And the next day, American Airlines dropped their flights from three to, to one. And, and seeing the reality that's on the ground. And when we talk about movement of bodies, right, and we talk about borders, the idea of border only exists for people who look like me, for people who are in need of protection. And I share that all the time when they had the, the storm in, 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 um, in Texas, the governor got he got he got his his family and they went to 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 Mexico. Ted Cruz literally got his family and they went to Mexico because he felt that was the safe space for him to be at the time. So when we talk about borders and 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 the need for the controlling of movement of people, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't exist if you are in power if you have the money to get on your private jet, right? To go from one place to another. If you have the authority, the power, the proper passport, the proper credentials to make sure your family is safe because of a storm, because we literally have a blackout and we cannot have ice from our refrigerators, but we can go to Cabo because Cabo still has power. 
But let's let's go move even further than that. The movement of bodies has always been a part of human history. How did we get here? How did we get here? Whether you believe in science, or evolution, revolution, you believe in faith, we all were came from somewhere, and because we needed to migrate in order to survive and thrive, we are here right now. But what I also say is that whether your forefathers came from the Mayflower or we have those people at the U.S.-Mexico border right now, the pursuit of happiness is the same thing that drove your relatives and ancestors, the need for safety, the need for freedom, the need for liberation, that is the same thing. So therefore, the movement of bodies is a natural thing for us to do as we continue to search for protection, continue to flee for, from violence, whether it is domestic violence or natural disasters, internal violence, external violence. That's what drives people out of their home. I was just talking to my husband yesterday, and we have a friend who was in California 10 years ago. Things wasn't working well for her. She went back to her home, hometown in, in, um, in Oklahoma, and now she's back in California. That is the freedom of movement. That is due to all people, because once we have a need for survival, we must be allowed the movement of bodies. So therefore, the idea of border that we see that the United States have, I said, pushed the border all the way down to Panama is only reserved for those most vulnerable and those who are literally in need of protection. Yeah, um, I mean, just to add, just to, add to what Ben is saying, the need, um, you know, the idea of borders, the idea of uh, people moving from one place to another, we all know from our history, if it was well taught, of how European and American you know, countries scrambled down to Africa to um, colonize you know, these, these territories. Um, they moved <laughs> to come down there to look for um, better opportunities or whatever it is they were looking for down there, and then harvested our ancestors and brought them over here as slaves. Um, it's going to work for them. Um, we all know that history very well. And again, after you know the decolonization that happened, the independence that happened, we all know that it didn't happen for real. Um, Gary mentioned about how the Haitian president, um, or you know, is literally getting a a a, a decision from United States to wake up from from the bed in the morning. The same thing in, in Cameroon. Somebody who is as old as it is something years has been in power for more than 40 years, um, still hungry to rule, who cannot even move, cannot walk, cannot talk properly, cannot even reason properly, but yet still the desire to keep on dictating and ruling over people. Um, he usually gets an okay from French government whether to wake up in the morning or not, whether to appoint which the government or not. So we see that um, you know, this issue is well designed and created by these um, European and American countries, and starting with direct influence over the government, direct influence over who is elected, 
direct influence over who is going to be in power because they want to keep sucking out the resources in this country. I was looking at a report the other day um, of how much aid, how much military aid the United States has given to Cameroon and other African countries. You'll be shocked by how much these countries have been equipped and funded by the United States. And are these same military equipment and tools that are being used to oppress the citizens. Uh, we have Cameroon um, right now, the English side of Cameroon being relegated. That's another story. With the crisis that are going in Cameroon right now, we know of the Boko Haram crisis in the north, and um, Anglophone crisis in the northwest and southwest, the um, Central African Republic immigrants coming into Cameroon from the east. We have intertribal conflicts, we have political crackdown and arbitrary killings and detention of opposition party leaders. So there are these same tools and equipment and military um, equipment that this government is using to oppress its own system that has been provided by the United States to kill, um, 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 detain, torture, and just execute innocent civilians. Um, not to talk about the ones that have even been able to be bold enough to stand up and fight for their rights. And so we've seen how these tools have been used to kill people, and then people are running away from these horrible conditions, these um, gross human rights violations to come and seek for refuge in the United States. And then we are treated as such when they are responsible for equipping these governments and controlling the government to control is in power, to control who who is there because they want to have total control of the new colonialism idea. And you know that is why we are calling for the demilitarization of African states because the United States and other countries, France and socialists, have deep hands rooted in Africa, exploring the resources, determining who is in power, and this is why people are running away because the United States and other countries have created these conditions. And you know the idea of border it doesn't just end here; it goes right into Africa. We're measuring how um, um, you know the walls have been built um, from here. No, it's right down in Africa they've created this. You know. Government are next in these various countries that are equipping this government and controlling who leaves the country or who who does we are immigrants and yet you're talking about the ideas of the idea of borders. So again, why people are why people are moving from one place to another. Thank you so much, Daniel. We have a couple of questions from the audience that I want to make sure we get time to ask. First one I, I'm going to pitch to Todd. Um uh a question that asks, what policies are border patrol agents using to justify imprisonment of refugees? What policies and what arguments are they using to justify the imprisonment? Iterations of the Border Patrol before that were about really not only imprisoning, but brutalizing um, refugees. Uh, um, it, it comes from a very, you know, like if you go back in the history from the Chinese Exclusion Acts um, of the late 19th century, it, the discrimin discriminatory nature and going after people and um, creating this idea that there's a quote unquote threat on the other side of this wall or this other side of the border is just that's the reason for the border the border patrol and then you see you see uh, um, is more specifically in the in the contemporary like looking at what's going on now they've been on this deterrent strategy now for for decades and you can see it in the caribbean even even before for like 30 40 years of this idea of of deterring people 
And one part of it is is incarcerating people as a deterrent. Um, it's part of the p- prevention through deterrence. That's the idea that that you force people, you build up the border, you force people into dangerous areas, whether it be the sea or through the deserts where they might die and people die all the time or are killed as probably a better way to say it by the very policy. And, and so the incarceration and all any form of brutalization, you saw it with the Trump administration forcing families apart that all I would categorize it within this deterrence strategy. Um, that, that is just the the intrinsic nature of the border patrol. And, and I would put the incarceration detention part of it right in there. Thanks for that, Todd. Another question. Um, uh, remember when Democrats were talking about kids in cages and abolish ICE? Now they're in power and are silent. How should social movements and the labor movement relate to the Democratic Party? Camila, why don't we start with you on that? Sure. I, I think the main thing is we have to hold whoever is in power accountable. And so there's been sort of this suspension of accountability as to the Biden administration and as to the border specifically. There's this fear that engulfs, you know, those around the Democrats, that this somehow serves the interests of the right and of Trump to to look at the border and to focus on issues of immigrant rights. But those issues are absolutely essential to our communities and we cannot betray or sacrifice them. And so it, it simply means whoever is in power, regardless of the party, regardless of the administration, has to be held responsible. And in the case of what's been happening at the border now, it's the Biden administration. You know, they continue to keep Title 42 in place. They continue to entertain the idea of reviving MPP. They're essentially negating the right to asylum on both sides of the border through the cooperation with Mexican authorities. They're repressing the caravans. They're arming and financing and encouraging these policies. We have to hold them responsible. Every time a migrant is detained, beaten, whipped, or chained, it's as if we were. That's the way we need to respond, and that's from where we need to act. It's our conscience and our consciousness, our reflection and our action. Gerline or Daniel, maybe you want to join in on this about how to deal with the Biden administration. You know what? Um, President Biden ran on this idea of build by better and saving the soul of America. And I personally fell into the trap of the saving the soul of America because I believed when he said that it made sense because for four years, we saw the soul of America completely being destroyed. And and, and full disclosure, as, as a Christian, I had a hard time dealing, right, with the soul issue, with the redemption issue, with the church issue. So when he said saving the soul of of America, I said that is what needs to happen. And now build back better for black migrants, for immigrants. We don't have a space to build back from. We must build from where we are. 
to create and change the system that was rooted in the, into the selling of black bodies, into the destroying of black lives, into forcing Haitians who fought for their freedom to pay to friends for lost wages because they could no longer enslave people so they could enrich friends and themselves. And now saving the soul of America as President Biden, you know, continues to, to talk about cannot be while souls are literally being destroyed under the Rio Bridge at the U.S.-Mexico border, in Panama, in Colombia, in immigration detention centers. So Build Back Better and Saving the Soul of America, um, of America requires that we be better, demands that we, that we act better. <clears throat> so President Biden... Uh, turning his 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 head as if he doesn't see or doesn't understand what's happening has been in power in government for the past sixty years. So this is nothing new. And as Camilo mentioned, it doesn't matter who is in the White House, who is in <clears throat> power, the policies that continues to destroy lives are the things that we continue to see guiding the principles of governments in the United States. So holding them accountable, pushing for the pathway to protection for the 11 million undocumented people, <laughs> DACA, CPS, people who have been in the country, farm workers, people who have literally had to prove themselves essential during COVID-19, People, as we are getting ready to have our big lavish dinners on Thursday, are the only reason why we have food on our table. They must be accountable for the lives of those people in order for us to be able to have a foundation to build from. Not to build back, but to build from. So they, they, they are responsible and they must be held accountable. Thank you, right. Caroline. Daniel. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add that, you know, just as every other person has mentioned, the idea, no matter whoever it is that is in the White House, the policies have always been designed to treat immigrants this way and black immigrants this way. And so therefore want to hold them accountable for that to change. Um, just as an aside, we saw recently how Marikas was in front of the commission of the Judiciary Commission in giving a testimony. And when another I know congressperson was given a chance to ask a question, a senator, he asked the question and turned the question to be now dividing cages. Those cages have been existing there for a long time. It has been it was there under the two administrations before. It was there, the trouble used those things. But now they've shined away that okay, now it's mm. dividing cages. And he kept highlighting on that issue and showing pictures. He forgets to know that those same conditions were even worse. You know, I don't even know if it's able to describe it worst or not. There were the same conditions um, that treated kids and black immigrants and other migrants, you know, that they are still facing the same issues again today. So it's over and over and over and over the system. So we are tired of singing this song. Uh, we don't just want to keep having discussions. We want people to take action. Uh, it's time to act, act in 
defending black immigrants, defending the 11 million um, essential workers, TPS holders, the Caribbeans who have been holding this economy even during and throughout the pandemic, provide them a pathway to be able to live freely, to be able to wake up in the morning and go to the mall without being afraid of being captured by CBP or ICE officers and being deported. People usually don't have the freedom to leave, to get out of the houses. They have to make sure the coast is clear before they even step out of the houses because they are scared of ICE raids or being um, um, you know, arrested and deported back to their home country. So it's absolutely uncalled for. Again, how, how much more can we talk about the treatment that the unequal treatment that black immigrant asylum, African asylum seekers are facing in detention uh, facilities? So please, um, the administration needs to act. Um, the administration wants to build back better from what doesn't even exist. So it's 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 time for them to be to stop playing deaf ears to this crisis. We've literally been letters upon letters and calls upon calls and millions upon millions and yet nothing is happening so please it's we, we can't keep doing this we are tired of fighting this fight and we need action to happen now thank you daniel i'll just um give todd if you have anything to add to this part of the discussion and then we'll have gerlene give us the last word and then i will just thank the sponsors and wrap it up so todd and then gerlene and then i'll <clears throat> wrap this up I just want to mention one thing um, about uh, I, I worked on a report that looked at campaign contributions from border industry companies uh, to to a bunch of in the 2020 election. And I looked specifically at Biden and Trump um, and compared them. And I thought it was going to be maybe a little bit more to Trump or 50 50 or something like that. But lo and behold, it was three to one in favor of Biden coming from the company, very companies that are getting major contracts to to for like surveillance, to build walls, to build detention centers, to have to detain and incarcerate people. And so um, I just wanted to add that in to to show that the Biden administration has other, has other factors and actors that they're that they might be beholden to, and it probably should be in our awareness uh, moving forward. Thanks, Todd. Gerline, maybe you can say some final words and I'll close yeah. and thank our sponsors. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, I, I can say that the Haitian migration crisis has been 200 years in the making. Uh, due to direct U.S. policies and European and westernized ideologies that has created internal violence in the country and external violence that we continue to witness uh, around the world. Um, as we say in Haiti, which means many hands lighten the load. Our call to, 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 to humanity is to please you join us in this fight for freedom, liberation, equity, and love for all people. Um, as, as pioneers of liberation, as pioneers of freedom, as a Haitian people continues to fight for what seems to be impossible, understanding that our collective freedom and liberations are connected, interconnected, and you and I cannot exist without one another. It takes Camilo and Todd and Ashley and Daniel in order for us to move forward as a people, as a human, as a human race, and I, so that we can really create a future we want to see for all people. Um, again, Ampil Meshai Palu, 
and we we really invite the world. If you are not familiar with what's happening at the border, Title 42 must end. They can no longer use that as a health crisis while we are literally opening our borders for anyone who has proper documentation to come in. Border is a made-up idea for people who are extremely vulnerable and cannot defend themselves. Again, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Gerline. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you so much, Todd. And thank you so much, Camilo. This was just a powerful panel. I hope everybody shares this widely and more than just shares it, learns, educates, and most importantly, acts out of it um, because we need serious change. The border regime must go. It must be abolished and people must be guaranteed freedom of movement throughout the world. So I just want to thank again our sponsors of the event, Haymarket Books, Spectre Journal, the DSA Immigrant Rights Working Group, Witness at the Border, and the Tempest Collective. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this evening. Solidarity. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.